But you will notice that we are in part seven of our Hebrew series entitled Our Faithful High Priest. And today's message is entitled A Greater Priest. And I have a very simple concept uh, to draw your attention to. Now that I'm looking at my notes, I think I grabbed the wrong notes. Well, that was awesome. All right. That was fantastic. I don't, don't even know what those are. No, actually, that's important. All right, here we go. Um, this is professional, you guys. This is very professional. All right, here we go. Uh, I want to I draw your attention to the fill-in-the-blank uh, on your sheet there just by one concept. And the concept is this. If God indeed is the creator of all things... If he is a sustainer of life, then he owns everything. You and I don't own anything. We are merely stewards of his stuff. When he created Adam and Eve, the idea was, hey, I have this amazing garden. I would like you to take care of it for me. God constantly supplies all things that we have. All good and perfect gifts are from above. God is the one that is consistently empowering us and designing us that we might have what we have. So what we have to get out of our heads is that it, ha- it is our stuff and that it's all about us and the world revolves around us. The reason why I keep banging that drum through this series is the misnomer that we are the most important thing is really screwing up our lives. We must come to the understanding, own it, live it, that it's actually all about him. Now, if he has supplied everything, then anything that we give back to him is appropriate. The most uh, accurate parable that Jesus taught about this concept, in my opinion, is the one that says, and a king gave his stewards some things to manage, went away on a trip, and then came back and said, hey, I gave you a bunch of stuff. What would you do with what I gave you? Because what that does, it reminds you, those guys didn't own that money. They were managing it for their boss. We are doing the exact same thing. So, whenever we give back to the Lord, we are ultimately giving back to the one that already owns everything. Anything that we distribute on his behalf, we as the creation are merely giving back to the creator rightfully. The fill in the blank in front of you is simply this. The lesser gives to the greater. The lesser gives to the greater. Even though God initiated giving things to us, he did so that we might learn this concept. That we give back to him in an appropriate fashion. Now, as we walk into today's message, and you may need a little time to get to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. It should be about page 1003, and the Bible's underneath the chairs in front of you. But as we open up this passage, we're only doing 10 verses. Sounds like we should be able to get through it rather rapidly. I hope that we can. And how we're going to handle it is address the passage first, get the context, nail it down, and then like last week, we're going to talk about the implications and applications of what we just learned, which leads us to talking about the issue of giving, tithing, offering. We will be talking about that today on the second back half side of the service. But in order to understand the passage itself, we have to have a series of history lessons to know a little bit more because once they give you the background, 
these 10 verses are going to be extraordinarily basic and obvious and easy to understand. So let's start out by getting a little bit more into a Jewish mindset so that we can understand. When the author was telling his audience this, and we believe it is a Jewish man speaking to a Jewish group about the idea that they cannot go back to Orthodox Judaism and stop pursuing Christ merely because they're being persecuted. They must continue on. Everything they're looking for is found in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When he's talking to them, they knew exactly what he's talking about because it was obvious and easy. So let's get into that mindset. The first thing we need to understand is we're going right back to discussing the priesthood. If you remember, he was talking and he said, I want to tell you all about how Jesus is our great high priest. And I'd love to tell you more about it, but you're too slow to learn. You're ruining my sermon. So I'm going to go ahead and pause this. I'm going to get on your case a little bit. And if the Lord motivates you, maybe we can actually talk more about it. Well, apparently God got on their case because he's talking a little bit more about it. Now, when we start talking about the issue of priesthood and we talk about a Jewish mindset, there's something that is extraordinarily valuable to them that we blow by in Scripture. And that is the issue of genealogies. Who you come from, who your family is, is extraordinarily important. What do we got here? Oh, awesome. I was just handed more notes. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Yes. However, I did have all the copies. I appreciate that. Obviously, I just sent my staff into a panic thinking that I did not have my notes. They're right here. All right. I just had two copies. <laughs> but that's pretty cool that, that uh, they're reacting and realizing there's, there's zero confidence in me. All right. <laughs> Which I don't blame them for at all. Uh, They've been with me too long. All right. The idea of genealogies to us seems rather silly. Um, when we get into Scripture and we're reading it, if you've ever tried to read the Bible from the beginning through the end, you're going to get super con confused and you're going to get lost because the Bible's not written in chronological order and it has a bunch of things that you may not be ready to address yet because they come up different in history and they need a little background. One of those is genealogies. Have you ever read where all of a sudden it says he begat so-and-so and he begat so-and-so and it goes on and on and on and on. And you just feel like, what a waste of time. Who cares, right? I get it. A guy had another guy. And then all of a sudden, at some point, somebody important showed up. All right, why can't we just jump to that guy? Do we really need to talk about everybody in between? Well, I grew up in a world where it was, I was never taught or referred to as far as classes of people. Um, I never had a heavy emphasis growing up on who our family tree was, genealogies. Some people, maybe as I grew up, did that as a hobby. They liked that idea. It was more of a fun thing. When you get into a Jewish mindset, you need to re-rack. Some of you have a little easier time because you have a great pride in your history of where you've come from. Uh, maybe your ancestors. I did not have any of that, so going into the Bible for the first time, it was very odd to me, this whole idea of it matters where you come from. I always assumed that it was who you are. It didn't matter where you come from. Now, in a Jewish mindset, you need to remember 
they have all descended from one guy. What's his name? Abraham. So in other words, their family tree is a Christmas tree. It all goes up into one point, right? So you got Abraham, and then everything goes from there. Because God had a special people group, the Jews, the Israelites, because he had a special agreement with them, covenant, contract, everyone wanted to know if you were in or if you were out. If you were in, certain rules applied. If you were a foreigner, certain rules applied. So they all wanted to know at all times... Were you part of the family or were you not? There were public registries to always write down your family line to find out where you're at. It was a very, very important thing, especially in the area of religious matters. So what we need to do is understand a little bit about genealogy. So I need you to memorize four names in this order, and I'm going to be saying them over and over and over, and they are simply this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You've got to remember that. Memorize that. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Why? Because you just scooted all the way through Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Just keep memorizing those because that will get you in line and organized as to who came when. Basically, Abraham starts the Jewish people. Isaac, his son. Jacob is Isaac's son. His name was changed to Israel. That's where you get started with that name. He had 12 sons. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them happened to be Joseph. All right? Joseph was the promised child, the one that was focused on. So that's why we memorize his name. From Abraham all the way into Egypt are those four names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now, what we don't know very well is what happened after that. So let me bring you up to speed on that. One of Joseph's brothers was named Levi. Now, we really only know four of the boys of the 12. I mean, we could probably name them, but we don't know much about them. We pretty much know the firstborn's name was Reuben. We know that the kingly line came through Judah We know Joseph, the coat of many colors guy, the Technicolor Dreamcoat guy. And we know of a guy named Levi. Now, Levi had three sons. Now, in those sons, I don't want to get into all their names because it would probably bore you a lot. But what we find out is that he had one son named Kohath. You go, do I care about that? Eh, not really. You care about his lineage. That was Moses, Aaron, Miriam. Right? We know that family. So now we're starting to trace it down. By the time we get to Aaron, God launches the priesthood. So it's all tracking through Levi's family line. But Levi had three kids. And then their kids had kids. Only one strain were the priests. What about the rest of them? Well, they all came from Levi, so they are called Levites. Let's not make it more complicated than we need to. But here's where we get confused. Priests are still Levites by birth. They're all still from Levi. But they're called priests to separate them out. One family line, 
They were important. Now, the way that it differed was simply this. God marked out Levi's crew special for him. He actually called them his people tithe. We're going to talk a lot about tithe today. He said, instead of you giving me every tenth male of Israel, counting them out and saying, those are going to work for me, I'm going to take one whole tribe for myself. I will take the Levites as mine. He puts them into religious service. That's what they do for a living because they were born into it. He separated them into three groups. The priests got to touch the holy stuff, do things with God. The Levites did not. Their job was to support their brothers, the priests. So they guarded the tabernacle. They guarded the priests. They helped them out. They carried stuff. As a matter of fact, for a nomadic people, the whole idea of setting up and tearing down the place where God meets was a big deal. So the family line, remember there was three boys. The three boys had three different jobs, and here's how the Levites were split out. It's going to sound really silly, but it was really an important job. Here's what they did on setup and teardown. One group, the Kohathites, because they're all from Kohath, their job was to carry the holy items. If they touch them, they die. Nobody touches the holy stuff except the priest. So before you carry it, the priest has to wrap it. Then he hands it to you in a blankie. Then you get to carry it. That whole family line, your job is to carry the holy stuff from wherever we're here to over there. Then the next family, their whole job was to carry the infrastructure of the tent. Their job was to carry the poles and the bases and things like that. Pole carrying family. That's it. The next family carried all the walls, the tents, because they would hang curtains around the outside of it. So you had curtain carrying family. That's it. The priests helped, uh, the Levites helped the priest, guarded the stuff, and carried the gear. That was their whole job. And you look and you go, that is ridiculous. Not in their world. You were very important. Because you got to handle God's stuff directly. Everyone else did other things. Now here's where it became rather crucial. When God allowed a breakdown of the territory, he gave different parcels to each son. Twelve tribes of Israel, right? Judah was here. Benjamin was here. Simeon was here. On that map, there's nowhere for Levi's team. They didn't get any land because God said, no, I'm going to have all your brothers support you and I'm going to spread you out all over the land as my representatives. The problem with that is how are they going to make a living? Everyone else had land to work, to have a job. Everyone else had territory. Everyone else had a business. The Levites did not. They were all helped by the tithes of the rest of the nation. If their brothers got selfish, they would starve. It's almost as if God built into there a community demand to be unselfish. And I think that he's done the exact same thing with us. Last thing before we begin is this. In the day of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
You're going to go, who are they? It's two books in your Bible. During that day, after they had been kicked out of Israel and they were now allowed to return and Jerusalem was broken down, during that day when they all got to come back to the land for the first time, if you said you were a Levite or a priest, you had to prove it on paper. If you could not, you were excluded as unclean and not allowed to do your job. Remember, you don't have any land. You were completely out. Paper, genealogy, family line, and descent is everything. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Hebrews 7, 1. As I said, we're just going to go through 10 verses and then dive into some concepts. Here we go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Easy, right? What? What are we talking about? When I explain it, it's super easy. Here we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we offer up our time to you. We ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts to understand and to receive and to engage with what you're about to say. I pray, Lord, that you would sift the words of man. That, Father, it is not the opinion of a pastor that we care about. It is the opinion of our God. And we pray right now, Lord, that you would communicate clearly to us and show us what you want us to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'd already talked about Melchizedek before. He readdresses the issue and he said, now let me tell you about this guy. You all know the story, he's saying to his readers. So he recaps. Now, this Melchizedek, the guy we were talking about, he was the king of Salem, merely a city in the area named Salem. He was priest of the Most High God. Now, remember, he's a contemporary of Abraham. Abraham hasn't launched the Jewish people yet. He's not a Jew. He's alongside, but he's legitimate. We have to understand, sometimes we get in our minds that God only dealt with the Jewish people. That is incorrect. God dealt specially with the Jewish people, but not only with the Jewish people. There were other legitimate, God-fearing people. This guy had so much respect. He was such a solid leader in his area that even Abraham knew about him. He was a priest 
of the Most High God. Now this man, who was also a king, we'll find out, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Do you remember the story of the slaughter of the kings? Of course you don't. Let me tell you the story. In Genesis chapter 14, it's a rather intriguing story. It begins like this. In 13, we find out that God blessed Abram. His name was not yet Abraham. Abram and his nephew Lot so intensely, they became so wealthy and loaded that they were too big to hang out together. Their people were arguing. So they thought practically we need to split up. Everybody remember his nephew's name? Lot. So Abram didn't want to be a jerk. He said, if we're going to split up, how about you pick the side you want and I'll take the other side, whatever that is. I'll leave it up to God. So Lot went out and scanned the area, looked over, and he said, man, this place looks fertile and lush. And you know what? There's some pretty cool cities, Sodom, Gomorrah. I would love to go that direction. So Lot chooses that side. Abram says, that's cool. I'll take the other side. And they split up. Well, over the course of time, we find out that Sodom, Gomorrah, and three other cities are all in a coalition that has been held down by some bad guys. They have a coalition of four kings. So four kings are ruling over five kings. Make sense? Now, after 12 years of having to pay tribute to the bad guys, they said, you know what? This is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. They don't pay it. Well, that ticks them off. So the four kings, the bad guys, they come in, storm the area, steal all their stuff, a whole bunch of their people, and run away. A surviving person runs up to Abraham or Abram and says, hey, your nephew just got stolen. Abram's like, great. He's 65 at the time, grabs 318 trained men. Now, why does he have a standing army? I'm going to venture to say he was that wealthy. If you're a desert prince, you're going to get attacked a lot. If you get attacked a lot, you need to have a standing army. He has a lot of guys accessible to him. 318 trained men and Abram take off and go after the bad guys. They beat them up, get all their stuff back, all their people back, and ride back into town. Got it? When they ride back into town, two guys approach them. The king of Sodom and this guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek walks up to him and he is the king of his city, Salem. And he is also the high priest of his city. Now, a king priest was normal in other areas, so it wasn't that unusual. When he walks up to Abram, he's coming up to bless him. He brings bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? Now, that may have been more normal at the time. But to us, we immediately start reflecting on issues like communion, right? the Last Supper, whatever you want to say. And we start making these connections to Christ. He walks up to Abraham and he wants to give him a blessing. Abraham symbolically bows down to him for the blessing and gives him a tenth, the best 10% of all that he just got. What's he going to do with the rest of the 90%? That'll come here in a moment. The blessing that Melchizedek prayed over him was this. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
we now have a man whose name means righteousness, king of righteousness, from the city of peace, bringing out bread and wine to bless Abraham. Well, that's ironic. Are we all seeing the foreshadowing of Jesus? Hey, it's not that hard to figure out. Is he Jesus? No, he's not. He's a regular guy. However, the author is going to use that story to make a point. What about the king of Sodom? He goes up to, after Melchizedek's done, he goes up to Abraham and he says, Hey, I really appreciate you beating up the bad guys for us. That was very nice of you. So, in honor of that, all I want is my people back. You can keep all the gear. Abram said, I swore to God a long time ago that I'm not going to let any other man make me wealthy. That's going to come from God alone because I don't want you ever saying you're the one that made me rich. I want God to receive the glory off that. I don't want your stuff. You can take it all. I already gave him 10% of your gear. You can have the rest of it. Does that make sense? All right, cool. Let's jump back into our passage. That's all he's, that's all he's referring to is that story. Now he says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, the best of the spoils. Now, speaking of Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Now, my mom's here. She named me Lance because she liked the way it sounded. It has no value other than pointing object. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> However, back then, their names meant something. And they would actually change your name to match your character. So for a man to be called king of righteousness, he's a stud. Right off the bat, everyone knows, man, if you're called king of righteousness, you're living an extraordinary life for God. Then he is also the king of Salem. Salem is the same root word that we have for shalom. When the greeting of one to another Jew would be shalom, it was not, hey, I'm glad your enemies aren't here so you have peace. It was, I'm glad your enemies aren't here and the full blessing of God has come upon you. That's shalom. So he is not only the king of righteousness, but he comes from the city of peace and not just the absence of enemies, but the very presence of God. Make sense? Big deal. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What does that mean? Does that really mean that he's an angel? Does it mean that he's Jesus? No. Jesus was present in the Old Testament, in my opinion, as the second person of the Trinity in the angel of the Lord, but I do not believe that he was Melchizedek. However, he's using a literary device to say, in our world where genealogies are all important, how weird is it that some guy shows up out of nowhere? Nobody knows who his mom is. Nobody knows who his dad is. As a matter of fact, he is like, and he uses the phrases that you would use for illegitimate children and what you would put on their birth certificate. We don't know who the parent is. He doesn't have any lineage. That's what you would use for the poor, the orphan, stuff like that. He said, in a world where genealogy is everything, 
no-name guy shows up. He's such a big deal. Even Abraham bows down to this guy. And then, in a world where your death is marked in writing, we have no record of the guy's death. So symbolically, in, in a literary way, he's still going. His priesthood, which all priesthood on earth was marked when that priest would die, his is not marked. So his priesthood has never ceased. That's the point. All right. But resembling, he was made to be like the son of God, meaning God ahead of time set up the show. He was, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Why does he say that? Because the only other place in the entire Bible where Melchizedek is mentioned is in Psalm 110.4. And it says this, speaking of the Messiah, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Got it? All right. Verse four. Now see how great this man is. He's still talking about Melchizedek to whom the Abraham, the patriarch, the big dog gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's a fancy way of saying simply this. The Levites received tithes because the law made everybody give them. Hey, that's not important. It wasn't that they were special. It's that they were born into it. And yeah, they walked up and said, dude, you need to give me 10% because the law tells you to. Melchizedek had no such law had no such lineage, and yet Abraham, because of the power of who that guy was as the representative of God, Abraham didn't have to. Abraham wanted to. Symbolically bowed down before Melchizedek and gave a tithe. That's all he said. Next verse. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. He's saying, man, it's just clear reasoning. The dad blesses the son. The son doesn't bless the dad. Why? Because the one with authority has something to give. That's it. So if Melchizedek's blessing Abraham, guess who's more important? Oh, that's easy. In the one case, in the case of the Levites, those men, tithes are received by people that die, mortal men. But on the other case with Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, because there's no recording of his death. One might even say... That phrase in Greek means, and now I'm about to say something totally weird. One might even say that Levi himself, where this whole lineage comes from, who receives tithes from everybody, he paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What does that mean? It means simply this. It's the same argument that Paul used about Adam. We are guilty of original sin, even though we weren't there. Why? Because Adam's the first man. We all come from him we all end up becoming guilty. In the same way, when Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, his lineage is Levi. So Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's it. What are we supposed to make of all this? If that is indeed the passage, what do we take from it? You're supposed to take Jesus is awesome. That's really what you're supposed to take from it. Why? Because he's saying over and over and over again, Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than than Moses. Jesus is greater than Aaron. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Do you remember 
when Jesus got into a whole bunch of trouble when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember that? And all the Jews freaked out and wanted to kill him. Jesus is greater, 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 greater. And he is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be worshipped. That's what you're supposed to get out of this. So why would you ever run anywhere else? All right, that is the passage. But because it brought up all these issues of tithing, because we're in the year of faithfulness, we need to use this passage to start a conversation, which is about the issue of what is expected of us in the area of giving, tithing, offering. Do any of us know the last recorded message that I have in my notes of me talking about tithing for any length of time was 2004. That means I don't like talking about it. And I don't like talking about it because I grew up, I am on the upper end of generation X. I grew up in an environment in a generation where all I saw was religion using money in a poor way. I saw scandal after scandal after scandal. I grew up in an era where everybody toppled and everything seemed corrupt. Because of that, I have only ministered to people who have been hurt by money tied to the church. So I have always avoided the topic. The unfortunate outcome of that is that I have stopped talking about it and we have become weak in this area. You are not being discipled by me on this topic because I'm avoiding it. That's not going to leave anyone healthy. So, in the year of faithfulness, it is one of the big four reasons why we're doing this year. So I'm going to hit it straight on. I don't believe all of us understand why tithing happens. Here's really what happens. Imagine you walked into a church for the first time. Some of you go, I'm right there. While you're singing, I'm going to give you a basket. I'm going to interrupt your song, and I'm going to say, hey, can you pass this enormous basket? And if you have money, put it in the basket hand it to the person next to you, and then we're going to take it out of the room and you have no idea where we're going. I want you to give your hard-earned money and we may well just take it to the casino. It's not that far away. (laughs) If we double it, praise God. (laughs) You have no idea what's going on. You look around and assume that, hey, is that person paid? That's kind of weird. What are you doing with money over here? I don't understand. We got this building. Is that the best use of funds? You have no idea. And we do this right in the middle of singing. What's going on? Right? We assume that we all know. We don't all know. So let's understand very rapidly. The first giver in the entire Bible is God. You need to understand that. We go back to my initial point. God gave everything. God owns everything. Anything we give back to him is already his stuff. Yeah? We got to burn that into our minds. You don't own anything in the sense of you go, well, I'm the one that earned it. No, God gave you a brain. God pulled the strings. You're God's puppet, and he owned it. It is not about you saying, I did it, I did it, I did it. That's a selfish mentality. No, you did not. And I'll tell you why. Because we've just been involved in a scenario where God said, you know what, I can take it all away if I want to. And there's nothing you can do about it. I will blow up your retirement. So there. When he gave, right off the bat, he said, I want you to give back to me. Why? Because the first recorded give back story is in the first family. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Right off the bat, they are told to give an offering back to God. How did they know that? 
Because their mom and dad told them. Where'd they learn it from? God. Directly. So for whatever reason, they're called to bring an offering. One was accepted, one was rejected. On what basis? Heart. The Bible says that Cain didn't do it with the right heart. Abel did. God accepted Abel's, did not accept Cain's. Heart matters. Cain got really ticked off about it, yeah? Kills his brother. We know that story. By the time we hear about it again is the Melchizedek story. All of a sudden, Abraham brings up this 10%. Where did he get the idea of 10%? It's not original to the Jewish people. Tithing or giving to a deity or giving to a priest actually happened in a whole bunch of environments all around them. They didn't make it up. Abraham did what he saw other people doing, the normal thing at the time. He gives a tenth. Tithe means tenth. He then gives that to Melchizedek as a signature to give to God. Then he leaves a lineage. His son starts doing it. By the time we get down to Moses, things become more formalized. As a matter of fact, God in his agreement, contract, covenant with the Israel people, it was mandatory. Now, I need you to understand a little bit about this. God literally said it's part of the blessings and curses contract with Israel. Do you remember those? If you do it my way, I'll bless you. If you violate my contract, I'll curse you. It's just the way it goes. Tithing was a part of that. Now, a tenth was demanded. More than a tenth was demanded. But one thing we have to understand is that Israel was a theocracy. You know what theocracy means? You know, we use democracy and all these different words. Theocracy means governed by God. So in a sense, when he instituted tithing, it was an income tax given to the government. Who was the government? God. That's all that he was doing. So it was kind of a mandatory income tax to run the nation of God. However, other tithes were demanded as well. Tithes for the poor, tithes for the temple. Different tithes were demanded. So a lot of people go, why give 10%? That's what the Jews gave. Stop. That's not what the Jews gave. The Jews gave more than 10%, and it was mandatory. If they didn't do it, they were cursed. You need to understand that part. In Malachi, it said, will a man rob God? They said, how do I rob you? And he said, by your tithes and offerings. Bring all your tithes into the offering because a curse has come over your land. It's very clear God was very serious about that. What were they supposed to bring in tithe? Well, they're an agricultural economy. Whatever they earned, they were supposed to bring. So there were tithes of flocks herds, wine, oil, grain, and it kept going on. Anything that you earned, your money was to be brought in, and you brought it in on a constant basis. So a lot of us get tripped up because we look and we go, well, what was it used for? Remember I told you that the Levites don't have a way to make a living. It not only helped God's stuff, but it supported the Levite people. That was the way it had to go. And you go, well, that... All right, but do they have to give? Do you realize that the Levites tithe as well? You go, well, that's weird. Yeah, they would receive the tithes of the people, and out of that, they would tithe to the priests. The Levites all gave a tithe as well. You go, well, that seems kind of counterproductive. Let me explain something to you. I give to this church. I always have given to this church the whole time. So I give a percentage of my income to the church. How stupid does that sound? I make money from the church and I give it 
back to the church, you say, why don't we just cut out the middleman? Just pay the dude 90%. Right? I mean, it just seemed a little more practical. And here's a major important understanding that you need to have. Because I'm not giving to the church, I'm giving to God. You need to shift that in your mind. You are not giving to a pastor. You are not giving to a church. You are giving to God. The reason why that's important is that your giving will go up and down based on your approval rating of the church. And that's not acceptable. God's approval rating is always 100%. So you have to be consistent in what's going on. If you go, well, I kind of like this series of messages. I'm going to give more. That's ridiculous. We can't do that. But the idea is I give back to the church because it's about me and God. It's not about me and the church. Now, we move on and it says this. They had to give the best. Remember, we all had that big, long talk. You're not allowed to bring broken stuff and go, hey, I was going to give it to the goodwill anyway, and might as well give it to God. That's, that's not acceptable. It was always the best, without defect, without flaw, all that kind of stuff. The part where we get confused is that sometimes in the Old Testament, it sounds like they gave if their heart wanted to give, and other times it sounded mandatory. That is correct. When it came to tithing, And certain sacrifices and offerings, they were mandatory. Then there was what's called free will offerings, which meant I need to make a vow to the Lord or, wow, I just want to tell God thank you. And it was a generosity thing. All of Israel's building campaigns were not mandatory. They were all free will. So when they first built the tabernacle, they made everything out of gold. They did the whole thing, made a real fancy place. That was all because it said whoever in their heart wants to give should give. It was not mandatory. When they built the temple, it was all free will. It had nothing to do with mandatory. They did not have to give. When the building was torn down and they had to rebuild it, it was all free will offering, not mandatory. In the same way, when we come to you, And we start talking about tithes and offerings, and we bring up building scenarios. What are we going to do with the building? Are we going to expand and all this stuff? Do you understand? That stuff is not mandatory. That is absolutely about a heart issue of going, man, I really believe in that. I'd love to be a part of that. That's where it comes in. Now, the other things that we need to understand is that the tithes were given to the Levites for practical support. And I need to address an issue. Do you have to give to a church? No. God is God. He's bigger than a church. The reason we give to the church is far more practical in nature. We give to the church for a series of reasons. One of them is because we say, I believe that the church is the primary way that God operates on the earth, so it's the best way for me to get my money to God. We also do it because we go, hey, we all meet together, and it's a lot nicer when the lights are on. I realize chairs cost money. I like a chair, right? It's a very simple, practical reason. My kids are all hanging out in the classroom. How did you afford the classroom? I don't know. It's from the money that comes in. We can all give to outside entities, but we just can't hang out together. Does that make sense? So it's far more practical in nature. Is it valuable? Of course it's valuable because we, as the church, have a certain vantage point to how things need to be distributed. You're trusting in management of the funds, to the church do you have to to get credit no no 
you have to realize that you give to God. What the church is doing is just as, uh, it's not any more valuable than someone that is hurting and needy and legitimate and you give to them. It's the same thing. God's working in both scenarios. It's not like the church owns the monopoly on that. Come on. So, of course, there's options for what you need to do. Now, I have used this role modeling concept. It was role modeled to me. I'll role model it to you. You need to make up your own decision. I happened to give a steady percentage of my income to the church, and then all the other things God taps me on the shoulder about, I actually do above and beyond that because that's considered an offering. That was where God goes, hey, I understand you've been giving on a consistent basis, but can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have that? Hey, I want you to go move and give my stuff over to that person over there. That's how it was role modeled to me. So that's what I would offer to you. By the time we get to the New Testament, there's a shift. And it's a very crucial shift. In the New Testament, we are under a different covenant on Jesus Christ. Now, granted, we do see Jesus operating in an Old Testament mindset. He went to the temple, and there were taxes, and there were tithes, and there was all these different things. However, do you remember when he went into the temple, and he saw everybody bringing huge amounts of money into the temple? And he kind of sat his disciples down for a field trip. Do you remember that? And he said, hey, do you see that poor lady over there? She's a widow. She didn't have any money at all. She put in two small copper coins that are worth a fraction of a penny. He said, she gave more than all these rich people that have been pouring in money. Why? Because out of her poverty, she gave everything. What is shocking to me about that story is that Jesus did something I would never do as a pastor. I would never have let her give it. I would have blocked her and said, "Hun, you need this. Go ahead and stay home. Jesus didn't. What was intriguing about that is that he brought in an axiom you need to memorize. And it's this. It's percentage, not amount. Percentage, not amount. Why? Every time the Old Testament is utilized, here's the concept. God says, if I've blessed you, I guess I'm going to get a little bit more back because it's a percentage. If I haven't blessed you financially, I guess I'm not getting anything back, huh? Oh, well, that's kind of on my shoulders, not on your shoulders. All tithing was based on income percentage. People mistakenly think that you have to give a certain amount to be holy. Hey, I, I feel bad because I'm not doing well right now and all I'm given is like five bucks and I don't want to stop hurting yourself over it. That's not the point. The point is not the amount. The point is sacrificial percentage. That's the point. Oh, well, everyone else is giving more than me. Maybe God thinks they're doing. God bless them different than you. God, God is utilizing them different than you. That is not greater than what you're doing. Percentage not amount. In the New Testament, the word tithing starts to disappear. You go, why? Because we're not under the same covenant that Israel was. There's no blessings and curses concept that is wiped out. We are not treated in that fashion. You will not be cursed if you don't give. It's not in there. You need to be very clear on that. There is no New Testament mandate of 10% or you're going to get cursed. That's old covenant. In the same way, you're not going to get blessed with cash by giving. The health and wealth prosperity message is garbage. Does God want to bless you? Of course, but as his kids. 
Sowing and reaping, right? You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly, you sow generously, you reap generously. We got to balance those two things out. God never said, I'm your 401k. I'll match your contribution. You give to me, I'll give to you cash. It's kind of an exchange. The problem with that concept is it's selfish at the core. I'm going to give to God so I can get more stuff for me. That's screwed up. You don't give to get, you give to give, period. And you know why we've always had to give? Do you know why God started it from the beginning? Because you and I are selfish to the core. And if we don't give, we'll die. God doesn't need our stuff. We need to give badly. Because we will turn so inward focused and it will be all about us. If you don't give, your character's taking a hit over and over and over again. God said, I don't want you to be a spoiled brat, so I'm going to put something in that forces you to give. I want you to give. Give back to me. Give back to me. Why? So I know you're not holding on to it too hard. Let it go. Let it go. By the time Paul starts talking about it and the New Testament shows up, we start seeing all kinds of weird dynamics. Paul starts talking about giving money to missionaries. Paul starts talking about giving money to poor churches. When we read Acts chapter 2, everyone goes, you know what? There's no, hey, I don't got a tithe. There's no 10%. You're right. It's 100. Here's why. In the New Testament, when the church first got started, they didn't have a building. They didn't have anywhere to meet. They met in their homes. There was no need for having an organizational structure. So it says, and Barnabas, the Levite, named Joseph, also known as Barnabas, came up, sold his house, and gave all the money, 100% to the church, and said, what do you guys need? It says they went into communal living. I'm not doing that. It said, and they all sold everything they had, and they gave each one as they needed, and they shared everything. Okay, that's fun for about three days. However, that's how they went. So you're right. New Testament doesn't have a mandatory tithe, but the principle is generosity, and the bar was set at 100%. What are we going to do? I don't know. It moves on, and we find out these things, and we'll close with these thoughts. Tithing is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. And I only use the word tithing very loosely. Tithing is 10%. It's Old Testament. I only use it because it's an easy way to talk. It means percentage to me. But understand, be very careful on assuming that God's mad at you if you don't give the right percentage. That's not right. However, it's an act of worship. We take the tithes or the offerings, or the givings in the middle of worship. Why? Because it's all the same thing. Remember, worship is saying that God matters to you. God matters to you in your time because you're here. God matters to you in your mind because you're dwelling on his word. God matters to you in your resources because you give to him. Every aspect of your life needs to clearly demonstrate that God matters. That's why we do it. Because mostly we're supposed to say this, God, you are so kind to me. I'd love to give you back. What do you want? You want this? Great. You can have that. What do you else you need? Anybody else? You have anybody that you wanted me to give to? Let's do this. It's an act of worship. It breaks our selfishness. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart at? It breaks your security and money. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the more money you have, the less you think you need God. 
Why? Because money does what God does. God wants to be your security. And if he thinks that you're putting all your security in money, he may well just blow up your life and go, I don't think so. That's not right. It frees us from sin's grip because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You and I are not mature enough to handle money well. You've got to own that. Well, yeah, I'm good at financing it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about character. I'm telling you, you and I at the core are too selfish to handle our money well. So we need to give. It is the responsibility of every believer to help those that can't help themselves. We have a huge amount of benevolence that we give out in this church, which is helping people in need. It's always maxed out because we've been going through a difficult time, meaning as a society. And you know what? That's awesome. That's great. But you know what? It is our responsibility. First John says, if you see a brother who has needs and you walk away, something's wrong with you. Because it's not about you. That's not why God gave you the cash. There are some of you that have the gift, the spiritual gift of making money. Well, that's kind of weird, blah, blah, blah. I have the gift of teaching. I am not allowed to only use my gift of teaching to make myself a billionaire. Do you understand that? Could I do something else other than this? Probably. My job is to submit all my gifts to the Lord and find out what God wants to do. You, some of you, have the Midas touch. No matter what business you do, it makes a billion dollars. Guess what you're supposed to do? Make a billion dollars. What are you supposed to do with it? Distribute it to the kingdom. Are you allowed to keep some? Of course you are. The point of money that God gives to his kids is the same reason why you give little gifts to your kids. So they smile and go, yay, daddy. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with laughing. There's nothing wrong with having toys. The point is, are you distributing it as well? Are you being generous? If you make a ton of cash, you're supposed to make a ton of cash. Just be generous with it. You bring it into the kingdom. I don't have that gift. I don't have the ability to do that. I'm using my gifts in a different way. You use your gifts. And I want you to be proud of that and happy about that. Rich is not bad. It's just a lot of responsibility. Finally, consider these things. Not only are you giving to God, not to church, and is it percentage, not amount, but be faithful in your giving, not erratic. Do not walk into church and go, hey, I'm going to give today because I got an extra 20 in my wallet. That's bogus. How often is that going to happen? In my world, never. I don't have any cash in my wallet right now. I have a gift card. It's California Pizza Kitchen. I give that. Okay, but the whole point is you're not doing it based on that. The maturity concept comes in when you balance two things. Being consistent in your giving out of faithfulness. And yet you're still responsive to the call of God. If God goes, hey, I want you to do that too. Run on. You react off that. The other thing is we need to realize that we need to be sacrificial in our giving, not comfortable in our giving. Giving is supposed to hurt. That's kind of the point of it. That's how it breaks the selfishness. If you're super loaded and you're giving 100 bucks and you don't even see it on your statement, that's not sacrificial giving. That's comfortable giving, which means you could give it or not give it. It doesn't matter. God's going, no, 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 no. I thought you were trying to say I matter. If I matter, I want it to cause a concern for you. I want you to pay attention to it. So I want you to get involved. I want your heart to be involved. David, when he was going to buy something for God, the guy tried to offer it to him free. Do you remember that? He said, I will not offer to God something that costs me nothing. No way. That's not what God's worth. 
We do not need to give to get, but we need to sow generously. And I'll finish with this last line. The question should never be, how much are you comfortable giving? The question is, how much are you comfortable keeping? If God gave you all your stuff to distribute to the world, some of it you need to retain. You just have to figure out where your comfort level, comfort level is in retaining. Are you cool with holding on to what you're holding on to? Is that sufficient if you are a distribution house for God? Is that appropriate? Listen, it's all God's stuff. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Unfortunately, your heart's tied up in your money. That's the problem. I want you so badly to have a healthy view and a joyful view and an exciting view of giving. And I apologize to you as your pastor for not addressing it for all these years. I don't believe that it should be something that we hate because I think that ruins the whole point. Please open up your heart and talk to the Lord about what he wants you to do. I'm not teaching this because we got building issues coming up. I'm not. You guys, I planned this nine months before we ever started this year. I didn't know what was going on. But I do know this. You matter to me. And I need every one of you mature in every aspect of your life. So let's submit this to the Lord too. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for talking to us once again about some challenging issues for some of us. Lord, we, we're not very good at handing over money. Lord, wherever you call them to give, wherever you call them to do, Lord, would you please allow them to be so happy about it? Lord, they feel like they're involved in something important that you're doing, that none of their money is wasted. And Lord, when they give to a missionary, that suddenly there's great value. So Lord, would you give us a new dream, a new vision, a new plan when it comes to our stewardship, that like Abraham, we would recognize your power in our lives and open up our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.